You're listening to the Sunday podcast from Life Point Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Open your Bibles to Psalm 27, and we're going to be looking at uh, the subject of the beauty of God this morning. The beauty of God. Let's say this. Psalm 27 is David, King David, and King David is constantly in trouble. Does that remind you of anybody in your life? I mean, he literally is just trouble to trouble to trouble. I often imagine as I prepared for this sermon that David, at times of his life, must have just said to God, why? Why did you send Samuel to my father's house that day? Do you know how nice my life was out there as a shepherd in the field? Do you know that my biggest worries were bears and wolves and I could fight them off as I protected my sheep? But the time has come in David's life where he has been chased by kings, he has been hunted down to be murdered, hid out in caves, lost his mind. And then, that's just the beginning because all of that happened before he became king. And after he becomes king, He's going to face trials in his family. He's going to face his own personal lust and temptation. He's going to face his own moral failures and downfalls. So, yeah, I'd say David had a little bit of trouble. But what he speaks here in Psalm 27 is the very essence of what it means to follow God. I didn't want to call it the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. I didn't want to say what it means to be a good person or a person who knows God. I mean to follow God to love the Lord, to give him everything is spoken of right here. And so we're going to look at that this morning. I spoke a little bit last week on what it is to uh, see the beauty of God, to make God your ultimate focus. And so this week, we're going to delve deeper into that concept because the Lord just didn't leave it alone in my heart. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall. Though an army is encamped against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rises up against me, I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, that will I seek after to live in the house of the Lord, all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or seek him in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter and in the day of trouble he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted up above my enemies which are encircled around me and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melodies to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart says. Won't you seek his face? Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You who have been my help, do not cast me off. Do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. If my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Teach me your ways, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Do not give up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses will rise up against me. 
and they are breathing out violence towards me. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take, let your heart take courage. Won't you wait for the Lord? This is the word of our Lord this morning. Let us pray. God, make these words, your, your servant David's words, come to life in our lives today. Would they be more than words on a paper? Would they be more than scriptures? Would they be the very breath that you meant them to be as you breathe them into us this morning as we gaze on the beauty that is you? In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. amen. So that's a pretty intense section of scripture, right? And here's the thing about it. The primary purpose of that scripture I want to lay before you is that it is to behold God's beauty. Now, if you read the whole first part of it, often Psalm 27, 1 through 4 will get read when we are in times of distress or danger. And it almost looks like it's more a promise of safety in the midst of trouble. Right? If you look at those first bits, it looks like it's about uh, the fact that we can have confidence. We can trust God with our life and our property. He will keep us safe. But there's a bigger promise here, and it's expressed in the first three verses. David said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Even if an army is set against me, circled around me, I will not fear. I will not fear. When we first read this, it looks like what he's really saying, if you trust in the Lord, he will keep you safe. This is a very popular message in modern Christendom. If I trust God, he will keep me safe. He will keep me from harm. He will keep me from sickness. He will keep me from failures. But I want to challenge that thought there this morning to understand this more deeply, to understand this as David was presenting it. Because if you do, if you walk away here this morning with a very, very crystal clear understanding of Psalms 27, I believe you will have a clearer understanding of what it means to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And what that means for your life, for your marriage, for your work, for your relationships, it means everything. David says in this psalm of confidence, he says, God will take care of me, I can trust him. I can live a life without any fear at all because he is my stronghold, my refuge, my light, my salvation. There's nothing I have to be afraid of. You see, we want to take this to mean nothing bad can happen to me, but what David is saying is, Lord, in the midst of the bad things happening to me, you are there. It never says in spite of. We read it that way because we want to translate God that way oftentimes. That he will protect us. That after all, we gave him our time, as Becky talked about this morning. We gave him our finances. We gave him uh, our faith. And we're looking for a little something in return for our faithfulness. You know, if you read the Psalms, it's not hard to get to this place. There are places, of course, where in the Psalms, it, it speaks to this. It says, a thousand may fall at your right hand, Psalm 91, 10,000 at your left, but the pestilence will not come near thee. The sickness will not come near thee. You know how tough it is to read that verse when you go into a hospital visit with somebody who's thick? There's always just sort of this moment when you get to that part and they sort of look at you and you look at them and then you just pretend that it didn't say that and you just move on past it. No, you don't do that. It's not how it happens. 
How, how can David say that? How can he say the sickness will not touch me? How can I look at Psalm 91 in a hospital with somebody who has already had the pestilence infected their body and they are very sick? What is David speaking to? So much more. He's going so much deeper than a physical illness. He's going so much deeper than that, what the army can do to his people or his kingdom. He's taking it much further than that. We love to look at Romans 8.28. You know Romans 8.28, anybody? Yeah, I hear, I hear it under your breath. All things work together for good to them that love God. That's great. Anybody here ever lost a job, had no money in savings, bills due, and you just went, Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who trust God. Everything's going to be fine. And then like three weeks later, you still haven't found a job. You still keep quoting Romans 8.28, or do you move into the Psalms where David cries out, oh God, why do you turn your face against me? Here I am, Lord, and yet you don't hear my voice shouting out to you. That's usually where we go. We stop quoting that one real quick. <laughs> Here's the thing with that. We have a tendency to insert the word our instead of his good. Our agenda, our good. But if you look at what Paul is saying in Romans... He says, all things work together for what? For good, just good, his good, the good. The good above all other goods, all things in life will work together for good to those that love God. It's not our agenda or our good. And here's the thing with agendas. We don't mind being sick. We're okay with being sick. We'll pray to God in the midst of it. We'll ask him to heal us. And if he does it, then he and you and me, we're all on good terms with God. But we don't want to be crippled. We don't want to be in a place where our, any of our faculties are permanently damaged. That's really, really bad. So Lord, keep me from the really, really bad things and I'll put up with the little sicknesses as long as we have this understanding. We don't mind being alone for a while. We don't mind a season where we don't have a spouse, a loved one. But for heaven's sakes, Lord, I can't go my entire life like this, so let's just have this understanding. You've got two more years to bring me somebody. And then I just, I jump on the social media, and I farmers only this thing. And we, fig we figure it out. So God, that's on you. That's on you. You don't have, you don't mind sort of not being happy in your job for a moment. You don't mind being in a career that you say this is a five-year plan but then I'm going to be in the place that God has for me. Then I'm going to be in that spot where I'm passionate and driven. Here's the thing about Romans 8.28. It's not the end of chapter 8. Do you know that? It actually has Romans 8.29, which coincidentally follows it. And Romans 8.29 says this. Where is it? All things work together for good. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Uh-oh. See, this, this is where the real rub comes in. This is where we really realize that Paul 
Jesus and David are not talking about this life in which our almighty God protects us from the things and the dangers of this world. Because if I am conformed to the likeness of Jesus, well, Jesus didn't have a home. Jesus was betrayed by his friends. Jesus was killed by those who went against him. Jesus did not have the comforts of this world. He did not seek the worry-free job and rest of this world. He sought what? The will and beauty of his father. And it cost him his life, ultimately. It cost the disciples their lives. It has cost countless men and women from that day their lives. So all things work together for good to those that love the Lord. (laughs) And in that, the Lord predestined us to be in the likeness of his son. Safety does not mean safety from trouble. It means safety in trouble. My soul, my hope, my joy is untouchable from the things of this world. You hear that? If God is Lord of your life, and if Jesus Christ and the message of the cross and the work of the cross is your defining ultimate beauty, then there is nothing, and I mean nothing in this world, that can steal your joy, your soul, or your hope. Those things are secure and locked in the foundation of who Christ is. And that's a deep, deep truth of Scripture. It's a hard truth for Americans. It's a hard truth for us to grasp. When so much of life is provided for us, when so much of the struggle of life has been removed, when our basic needs are met on a daily basis, it's difficult to understand that when the smallest things happen to us, we see them as major life-altering events for which God has been absent from his throne for some reason. In the midst of your trouble, the most important parts of who you are will be safe. Your soul, your hope, and your joy. This world cannot touch those if you are rooted in the beauty of God. So let's talk about this. How is this realized? After verses 1 through 3, he explains how it's realized, that it's not his health, it's not the wealth, it's not his friends, his loved ones, his success, it's not David's achievement. How does he say he realizes it? This is what he says at verse 4, is beautiful, beyond beautiful. This is, this is it, and this is where we want to get to. We want to get to this point before we leave today, ready? One thing I ask of the Lord is this that I'd seek him, that I may dwell in his house, that I may gaze or behold his beauty, and that I may search for him in his temple. One thing I ask, Lord, one thing I ask is that I may seek your beauty, that I may dwell in your presence, and that I may constantly be in search of you in your temple. Is this how you pray? Can you say in your life this same exact thing, that my number one goal of God Almighty, 
that my prayer for the last seven days from the last time I was in church was, God, all I want from you this week is to seek your glory, is to know you more, is to rest and know what it is to be held by you, to be in your beauty. And I want it more than anything. I want it more than anything. David's giving us a structure for courage. He's giving us a, um, an outline, so to speak, for how to be courageous in the midst of all the trouble that life is throwing your way. First of all, he says, wipe out expectations of an easy life. Okay, done. That one's gone. Refine your understanding of safety. Refine your understanding of safety. I know this is something Rebecca's had to do as she's prepared her heart. Here's the thing. She's just not going to Haiti, but as you know, recently there was that youth group and you and pastor who got stuck there for a long time because of the political uprisings going on, and that is going on right in the point where Rebecca is making the final decisions to go. And I was just sort of like, you don't have to go if you don't want to. That is scary. She didn't bat an eye. She just was like... You're a chicken, I'm going. And she said those words to me and it was really convicting. <laughs> she didn't. But she, she's never wavered from it. She has redefined her understanding of safety. She realizes it's possible to live a life of confidence and trust and she realizes that there is nothing that can happen down there apart from the Lord's will and her hope, her soul, and her joy rests in him. But here's the thing, there is nothing that can happen to her but there is immeasurable good that she can do for them. There is eternal good that she will go and do in the lives of the men and women that she touches and is a part of while she is down there. Eternal value will be laid, will have foundations laid there. But there is nothing that can take those, the most important aspects of her life from her. In other words, he would say in verse 4, the very essence of the cry of the Christian heart is this. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, often difficult times to read, says, the difference between a real Christian or a religious person, remember Edwards was not PC, he was not somebody who was going to worry about your feelings, he came from a different time, he actually wanted to hurt your feelings. And this is how he would say this, he would say, the difference between a Christian or with a renewed heart by the Holy Spirit and just somebody who is religious is the religious person finds God useful and the Christian finds God beautiful. The religious person finds God useful. Oh, I get God, I get it. I get having a spiritual center. I get having somebody to help guide your country's moral beliefs. It's a very useful thing. Men have used religion since the beginning of time to control the masses. But that's not what a Christian is. That wasn't what Jesus Christ came and said the power of the Holy Spirit would do in your life. It would not change you to be able to see God to be useful. It would change you to be able to see God to be beautiful. And here's the thing. Here's why it's so hard oftentimes to tell the difference between a Christian and a religious person is because you put them together and they are both obedient to the word of God. They are both committed to God. They are both bowing to God and submitting their life to God. They may even both be desperately seeking God. But the religious person is doing it because he is driven 
and the Christian man or woman is doing it because they're attracted. They're attracted. If you're married in here or have been in a relationship, you know what that feeling's like, right? Do you pursue your spouse because you figure they will be useful? Now, if you did, I just need you to keep that to yourself. It's for your own benefit, men. Like, there's a strong mate. We'll have tall children and football players. So, yes, I married her because it would be useful. Or were you attracted to your spouse? Were you drawn to their beauty? And the truth is, the more you get to know the person, the physical beauty uh, is not what becomes important, but who they actually are. The, The person becomes the thing you are attracted to, and you begin to pursue them, don't you? You pursue their heart. You pursue their passions. You lay aside your own wants and needs in order to see them better. That's the difference. As a religious person is driven to find God's usefulness and the Christian, the renewed, regenerated heart is driven to find his beauty because you're attracted to it, because you understand the cross. You understand your sinfulness and the place that he found you. And here's the thing. If you want to gaze on the Lord and see his beauty... You first of all have to take in information about who he is, right? We can see people on TV and movies all the time, and they have a physical beauty that is uh, immediate to all who see it with their eyes. It's just boom, there it is. But the truth is, until you actually get to know that person, you don't know if there's somebody you actually want to spend your life with. In fact, most of them aren't. And so the physical beauty is deceiving. And so you get past the physical beauty and the truth is what really attracted you to your spouse or that person that you're dating is that you learned who they were. You learned information about them. You learned what made them special. You learned the things about them that even drew you closer to them. And so here's the thing. And, we'll clo- and I want to get, I got to get to this as we close here. As we start, as we talk about how we get to that beauty of the Lord, you say, how do I see the Lord is beautiful? How, how do I do that? It, start, it doesn't start with just sitting down and praying and say, okay, Lord, you do this for me and I will begin to praise you and see that you are beautiful. Psalm 1 actually talks about it. It's not just going to be studying the Bible, right? Grab a Bible, grab a commentary, just start burning through it. You're not going to see his beauty there. You may begin to find information about him, which is great. But Psalm 1 says this. The beauty of God is found in meditation. It has a place where it says the godly man delights in the law of the Lord, and it is his meditation day and night. When you meditate on the word of God, you are trying to get it into your heart and make it a part of you. You aren't just reading it for the information's sake. You are reading it for the transformative sake. There are two ways to read the Bible. There are two ways to read scripture. Psalm 39 says, I meditated until my heart grew hot within me. There's an informative way to read scripture, which is, uh, as a pastor, one of the ways I'm reading it all week long, an informative way to be able to teach. But the struggle as a pastor is to separate the informative from the transformative on a weekly basis. 
or then I have to just read the scripture so God can continue to transform my heart, my wicked self, and that I can see his beauty through that. You won't see, hear me on this, you won't see the beauty of God through informative reading of the scriptures. You will learn about him. You may learn about Greek and Hebrew and the Aramaic people. You may learn about a different civilization, but it will be transformative reading through meditating on the word that you will begin to see God's beauty. Now, there are people who will see the beauty of God because God will reach into a situation in their life. I was reading a testimony this morning of a young man who was lost in all sorts of sexual sin, and then that brought him into alcoholism and then self-mutilation, and he was completely at his worst. He was in so deep into it that he wanted to kill himself, and that's where God met him and found him. And as you read his testimony, it is just all he sees is the beauty of God. In fact, as somebody who's been a believer for 30 years, it's sort of refreshing. You sort of remember what it was like to be that on fire where you can't see anything without seeing God's beauty in it. But once you've taken the time to meditate on what the scriptures say, that's when you turn and you pray. And this is how we pray. And I'll close with this and invite the band out. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I'm going to stop there today and we'll finish the rest next week. Hallowed be your name. Do you know what the word hallowed means? It is a word that our English language does not have a word to convey. We have to use two to three words to convey what hallowed means, which is why if you look at multiple versions of scripture, right? NLT, NET, uh, NIV, NRSV, P-O-P. <laughs> yeah, the last one. Whatever you look at, most of them, 90% of them use the word hallowed from the King James Version all the way up to the modern NIV Version. There's a couple that use the word honored. There's a couple that use the word holy. But the problem with that is, and this is a struggle for me, I hate when words like this get translated poorly because they do not capture the essence of the word hallowed. Hallowed means, hallowed be thy name, means the most sacred and the most ultimate at the same time. It is sacred and it is ultimate. Ultimate meaning nothing higher, nothing greater. Sacred meaning nothing more holy, nothing more righteous, nothing more pure. That is hallowed. Hallowed be your name. May it be the most sacred and the most ultimate thing in my life. Isn't that amazing? Jesus taught us how to pray. This is Jesus teaching us how to pray to the Father. And he says, you come before him, you acknowledge he is the Father, our Father in heaven. Most sacred, most ultimate, be your name. When you hallow something, you treat it like this in your life. And here's the thing. If the thing you adore is not God, if the thing that you hallow in life is not God, then the only time you will pray is when the thing that you hallow is in jeopardy. You hear me? Your prayers all week will be concerned with the true things that you hallow. You can look me in the eye here and say, I hallow the Lord. He is my ultimate. He is my sacred. And much like a survey, a company would do with a survey, is we would take your life then that week and we would see where your prayers are directed in the quiet place. You know what the verses before this say in Matthew 6? He says, don't be like the hypocrites and pray in public where all can see you. 
Don't be like those who put on religious airs to try to pretend that they are in communion with my Father. I am concerned with how you pray when no one is looking. I am concerned with when you lie in bed at night and the anxiety and the worry of the day is eating away at you. What do your prayers look like? What do you hallow? That is where truth comes out. That is where the idea of success, comfort, approval of people, love, family, relationships, sex appeal, that will determine what you most hallow is what you pray in your quiet space. And Jesus says, if you want to see the beauty of my Father, then his name must be hallowed. It must be the most sacred, the most ultimate thing in your life. And I've talked before about the primacy of prayer, how we, it's the acts, we acknowledge God, we confess our sin, we give thanksgiving, and then we bring supplications and requests before the Lord. But here's the thing. In Philippians 4, it says, have no anxiety in anything, but make your requests known to God. I can tell you as somebody who struggled with depression and anxiety, that we have anxiety. We will have worry fill our hearts over things that are hallowed above God. We just will. For me, it's health. I'm that person who says, okay, three-day flu, I'm in it, let's go. You got me, Lord, I trust you. Lifelong cancer, debilitating injury, well, you're gonna have to help me through this one, Lord, because I don't know. I'm being just real open and transparent with you. I'd like to believe that's not me. I, I ask God for faith greater than that. That's what causes me to worry. That's what brings me anxiety. That's what brings fear. And it's because I hallow my health at times greater than I hallow the name of the Lord. My health is my sacred. It is my ultimate. What is it for you? What did you spend the most time praying for this week? Your kids' safety as they went back to school? Your kids' health that they wouldn't bring home any of those flu germs to your house? Your job? that you'd continue to get it, that you would get the raise, that you would find work, your relationship, that God would repair it between you and your spouse. Here's the deal. I'm not telling you not to pray for any of these things. I'm asking you what consumed your prayers this week. If you want to see the beauty of the Lord, get to know him. Transformative reading of the scriptures. Meditate on a single verse all day. And if you want that to then change you, pray and hallow him above all other else. Amen? This is the word of the Lord this morning. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we bring this truth before you here. We bring this truth before ourselves here this morning, Lord. We ask that you would redeem this time. That for the men and women in here who call themselves Christians, Myself included, Lord, make this truth forefront in our minds. That if I do not hallow you, if I do not put you above all else in my life, then I am missing the point of all of this. If there is anything in my life more preeminent than you, then I am missing the point. 
if the good works of ministry around the community, if the needs of others, Father God, is above you, then I am missing the point. Help me in my unfaithfulness, Lord. Help me in my unbelief. I would see you as my sacred and most ultimate desire. We sing a song, your beauty is all I seek, but we don't mean it, Lord. Help us to mean it. Help us to know and count the cost of meaning that phrase, your beauty is all that I seek. And we praise the name of Jesus this morning. ushers forward. We're going to take communion here together and we do communion. We have three stations up front and three in the back and you can go to whichever one is closer to you. We just ask that if you partake of communion, you have a relationship with Christ, that you've given your life to him. As the purpose of communion is a remembrance of that gift that you've received from him. It's a sacrament that reminds us of the beauty of the Lord. The beauty of communion every week and why it's so important here at LifePoint and why it is something we do every week is that reminder that my beauty, my, my divine, my ultimate, my sacred is not my home, is not my children, is not my spouse, is not my money, is not my success, is not my health. It is Christ and the cross and him crucified and him resurrected. That is my beauty. That is my life. So go ahead, partake of the bread which is the body and the juice, which is the blood of Christ, as we observe communion together and we'll close in worship afterwards.